Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by, grace, so, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. It has been long observed that one of the reasons depression rates among teens and college students are higher than the general population is because their prefrontal cortex is still in development. Not only does that make it harder for them to accurately weigh consequences, but it actually interferes with their ability to understand the nature of time itself. And I actually still remember this kind of cognitive distortion of time when I was a teen. Time felt both heavier and slower. And so every feeling I felt felt as if it could go on forever. Which in some ways is exciting when you are 18. Like you meet someone cute, you have like a first kiss, and then you're like planning the wedding. But also, I was a bit nerdier. And like, when I mean nerdier, I mean nerdier. I'm dancing alone in this picture. Like, I look like a toothpick. My face was a pepperoni pizza. I had bad taste in 90s Christian music, right? I did not get dates ever. So when adults told me, well, things will inevitably get better. I was like, well, you don't know that. I might look this way for the rest of my life. And now I'm like, man, I wish I still had that same metabolism, right? Because my face looked like a pizza, but I could have eaten all the pizza I wanted. But seriously, when well-meaning adults did try to reassure me about my future, logically, I could comprehend what they were saying but I couldn't feel it. The despair I was experiencing at the time did not feel temporary. It felt permanent. It felt as if it could go on forever. In today's section in our letter to the Hebrews, our likely authorial candidate, Apollos, begins to shift his long commentary on angels He's still talking about angels, but like last week, even though he's talking about angels, angels are not actually the point of what he's talking about. Last week, he challenged the Jewish Christian congregation in Rome not to pursue functional saviors that were not the true savior, to not drift from the gospel message. 
It was a challenge against indifference. But now it's something else. Consolation, encouragement in the fight against despair. Let's pick up in the second half of verse 3. It, that is, salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Our preacher in Hebrews has a habit of reminding his congregation why they believe what they believe, and he lists it here in order of importance. First... We believe because of the person and work of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Second, we believe because of the first followers of Jesus and scripture inspired by Jesus. Third, we believe because of the signs given by the Holy Spirit. This is important for us to note, because some of us have come from religious communities that get this order in reverse. They root their authority in signs and wonders. That is, some special claim to hear from the Holy Spirit. Or maybe they say that you should believe in what they're saying about God because they have very emotional and passionate worship that it's coming from the Holy Spirit, which coincidentally often looks like everyone is also microdosing on shrooms. <laughs> or maybe macrodosing. I don't know the difference. Or perhaps, more often, religious communities that you may have come from actually root their authority in the Bible, which is higher on the order listed by Apollos. But as many of you have experienced, this can be easily weaponized by the wrong religious leaders. It is not hard for people, typically cranky older white men who like power and control, to take things written in the Bible, not have great context, and then be like, boom, you need to do what I'm telling you because it's in the book right here. This is why Apollo says, we believe what we believe, not because of what we interpret as miraculous signs from God, not even because of the wisdom that is in the Bible, but because of what Jesus has said and done. And to be clear, the other two can be very good. But Jesus is always our first and our final authority. This is why our preacher Apollos is constantly coming back to Jesus. Even though it feels as he has this emphasis on angels in the first chapter, the angels only serve as a reference point to his Christology. Verse 5. For it is not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Okay, I just, just want to pause for a second, because I actually love verse 6. Apollo sounds like he's having like a President Biden moment. Like he's in the middle of this really important speech, and he's like, yeah, someone somewhere said this thing once. However, I don't think Biden can use his excuse because this is actually standard Greek rhetoric when it doesn't matter so much where your source comes from as much as the content is what matters. And because this is uh, Apollos not having a Bible that has chapter and verse yet, that's not invented for another 1,500 years. So I I'm sure you remember from last week that this offset formatting that you see if you're reading your Bibles means that Apollos is quoting from Scripture again. Where is he quoting? 
Well, his favorite place in the Bible, the Psalms. Today, it's from Psalm 8, which Aaron had us communally recite in our call to worship this morning. Let's read it together. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, the original context about Psalm 8 is about humanity. The Greek word here for man is anthropos, which means not just only about males, but it's inclusive of females as well. So what is the psalmist communicating about humanity? Our surprising importance, our surprising value in the schema of existence. Humanity is just a little lower than the angels. This in and of itself is a beautiful course correction to many of the extremes in our culture today. Because on one hand, some people will tell you that humanity has very little value. And there are actually both religious and secular people who will say this. Religious people will often say, ah, well, people are just terrible sinners and they deserve to burn in hell forever. But there are also secular people who will say that people are a virus and a cancer upon the earth and it's just better if we didn't even exist. They have different reasons and agendas, but ironically, they both have a very low view of the importance and goodness of humanity. On the other hand, some people will overinflate humanity's ego. And again, there are both religious and secular voices saying this. Some religious folks will say, you know, that humans are just inherently good. We have all the power to choose good. And deep down, we are always trying our best. But there's also secular people who say that humanity is the final measure of all things. Whether that measure is our ability to use logic or reason that we think works in a given era or whether that measure is economic growth or GDP despite any environmental harm. They have different reasons and agendas, but ironically both have an exceedingly high view of human importance or human goodness. The psalmist, however, strikes a middle course. Humanity is made good and important but within the relative frame of reference to both God and the rest of creation. In fact, the psalmist here communicates this truth with a rhetorical question. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? In other words, relative to the universe, empirically speaking, we are neither very important nor very good. But for some inexplicable reason, Relative to God's character, relationally speaking, we are very important and very good. God has crowned you with glory and honor because you are made in the image of God. That, though, is the original context of the psalm. Apollos, however, is going to utilize a midrash again, that creative Jewish interpretive technique that we learned about last week, just to give you a quick refresher. A midrash is designed to give a, a new spin on an ancient text in order for the purpose of expanding our theological imagination. 
So here's what Apollos does. In verse 6, where it says, son of man, he does some brilliant wordplay. Originally, man meant humanity, right? That's what we just established. But here, Apollos connects it to another part of Hebrew scripture to make it about a singular person, a singular man, referenced in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In our Old Testament book of Daniel, this was eventually understood by Jewish scholars to contain prophecies about the Messiah. And it has this cryptic reference to God coming down to earth like a son of man. It symbolized God's solidarity with humanity, but also to be a clear sign of what God was expected to do as the divine ancient of days. Which, by the way, I just love that name for God, the ancient of days. It's pretty cool. And as it turns out, this was Jesus' preferred identification for himself. The Gospels record that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 78 times. Why? So one, that people could understand Jesus' solidarity with humanity, but also what is prophesied in verse 14, that Jesus himself was the one who is sent by God who would, quote, be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Apollo says that while Psalm 8 was originally about God elevating humanity, privileging humanity to a special status, almost as high as the angels. It's also about God descending to humanity, being divested of privilege, even below that of the angels. In fact, somehow in what God did in descending to humanity, something that the Son of Man, Jesus, did resulted in him being crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. But hold up. I know, they're like, we have protests. Y'all think about this for a sec. What we just heard, is that really happening in life? Seriously, is either reading, that is our original psalmic reading, and that meaning, or our original meaning that, that Apollo supplies in Hebrews, are either of these things actually true? Do we see them happening? Are all things subjected to humanity? Well, we still have sickness, and cancer, pandemics, natural disasters still devastate us. Palmetto bugs still exist. Whether you are talking about 10th century BC, 1st century AD, 21st century today, even with all our technology, I don't feel like much of the natural world has been subjected to humanity. Why is that? Well, the short answer is sin. That is, humanity was made to rule as the pinnacle of creation, but our distrust in God and our propensity to want to be our own gods ruined that purpose. 
Human sin has so distorted our purposes that even though God's plan for human dominion over the earth was good, it is hard for us even to conceptualize how human dominion could be good. Think about that. The human story is so broken that we naturally associate the notion of rulers with oppression and tyranny. Because that's about all we've ever known, right? We can't imagine rulers being a good thing. And to be fair, even today, when people do manage to subject the earth in some way to us, it is often just to exploit it. But what about the Hebrews' interpretation of Psalm 8 then? Maybe that works. All things might not be subjected to humanity, but perhaps things have been subjected to the Son of Man. But if that's true, I mean, then why is the Roman Empire still persecuting us? Why did I pray for that family member to be healed of that disease and they still died? I mean, I said Jesus' name. Why did my abuser escape justice, just get off scot-free? Why, why do I keep coming back to my childhood trauma despite all the things that I've done to fix it? Why do I never get healing? Look, I get that human sin has made a mess of things. I mean, we, we can call this like free will. I get it. But if it's true that all things have been subjected to God, it's not that I don't see it. It's that I don't see anything close to it. Is our preacher in Hebrews really this naive? Is he really this brainwashed by religion? I don't think so. After all, it was much harder to insulate yourself from suffering then than it was today. Life expectancy in the first century was 55 years, 35 years if you factor in the infant mortality rate. Nor was Apollos educated in the ancient world equivalent of Oxford, unfamiliar with skeptics and nihilists, Philosophers who saw suffering as proof of divine absence or at least divine malfeasance. No, Apollos is not naive. The preacher of Hebrews is a realist. Look at verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Y'all, having faith in God should not make us dishonest about the state of the world. And Apollos is honest here. The word of God is honest here. Because the evidence indicates, our lived experience indicates, that the will of God is often painfully absent around us. Hebrews says that we do not see everything in subjection to God. Apollos fully concedes to the skeptic's objection. In fact, there's no question of if I will suffer in life. It is only a matter of when and to what extent. And it's different for everyone here. Some of you have endured what many people would consider terrible suffering. And you have turned out pretty much as fine. Others of you have endured suffering that a lot of people would say, well, that's not that big of a deal, but you still feel crushed by it. But no matter 
the difficult of the suffering that we have gone through or that we are going through, there is always a temptation that we will not just suffer, but that we will despair. Why? Because like the teenager with the developing prefrontal cortex, scientists have now confirmed that this part of the brain is still crucial for us as adults for imagining the future. And if part of our brain can develop, it can also be damaged. The insidiousness of despair, the cruelty of despair, is that it deceives our minds into thinking that the struggle is not just temporary, but permanent. That what we're feeling will somehow go on forever. So what pushes back against the despair? Why should the audience of Hebrews dare to believe that God is renewing and restoring the world even though they can't see any evidence of it? Because they have seen one thing, our preacher of Hebrews says in verse 9. They have seen Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I know we've already said the name of Jesus a lot since starting Hebrews, but this is actually the first time that Apollos does. He's called him the son until now, the eternal cosmic Christ who created the universe with God the Father, superior to angels in every way. But it is only when talking about the problem of suffering and despair, only when confessing that it sometimes feels like God is absent and unseen, does he finally say at the end of this run-on Greek sentence that feels like it might last forever, but we have seen Jesus. Why does it matter that we've been able to see Jesus? That Jesus is a real historical figure. Well, the preacher of Hebrews pivots again to the flexibility of another Greek word. In the original Greek in Psalm 8 about the divine son of man being a little lower than angels, it can also mean for a little while. And Apollos applies this double meaning to Jesus. That what God did in Jesus was to enter God's own creation for a length of time. A lifetime, really. God entered three-dimensional space-time so that the omnipotent, eternal God who cannot be normally seen becomes visible in the life of Jesus. How does this then help me resist the temptation to despair? How can I dare to believe in the evidence of suffering? Because the same God who is above all creation lowered himself into creation for your sake. The same God who exists outside of time entered into time for your sake. God lived in our space-time as a human and suffered a human death on our behalf. Here's why that's good news. Because even though Jesus suffered unjustly, it was unfair. It was not endless, but only a little while. 
Even though Jesus was killed, he was not consumed by death, but rather he only tasted it. What came next was glory. What came next was honor. So if I can believe this morning that in some way my life is represented by Jesus and God invites me to believe just that, then I can know that my struggle is not permanent. My suffering cannot, will not go on forever. And so yes, there will be days where I think, where I feel that despair is the only rational option. But despair is a lie. Despair is a lie. The life of Jesus is the truth. And when time gets heavier and slower, the life of Jesus can help me to see that which I might not be able to see. That Christ subjecting all things is a now and not yet reality. It is the astronomical twilight before the dawn. But where it is not yet in your life, God's grace is sufficient. And the fullness of God's grace will come to you as surely as you will see the Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Colin, I appreciate you showing us that high school picture of you. That, that is, yeah, peak vulnerability right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah I feel you. I, I played offensive tackle when I was in fifth grade. So I, I want I want to see that photo. That sounds awesome. I, I will show it to you sometime, <laughs> but puberty was the best thing that ever happened to me. All right. How does this response to despair fit with the theology of an eternal heaven, if not hell, how can a human be eternally happy? Okay, um, this is probably, I'm, I'm not going to give this question a great answer. I feel like there's like three questions in this. So if Christians believe that there is a, a eternal union with God, right? I don't like saying reward, right? Because that makes it think like it's like you earn something, right? But the, what we hope for as Christians is union with Christ, right? Which is the source of all goodness and joy and love, right? So if to have union with Christ is an amazing reward, right? Um, and so we can trust that even suffering in this life will culminate in union with Christ, right? And that our suffering will never go on. In fact, it will be replaced. Whatever suffering we have in this life um, will be replaced by joy. In fact, there are, a lot of the theologians will say that like, when we look back um, once we are in union with Christ for all eternity, we'll see our, our suffering, right, as these, like, signposts, these marks in our life, and a lot of the suffering that even we thought was incredibly intense now will begin to fade away because we are so enveloped in the love and beauty of God. Um, so I think it's important to have a theology of heaven, a, a theology of eternity with God, but I also believe still that, like, even though that might be the case for some people, that you only get your good end on this this other side of heaven, I do think God is really good. And I've just heard so many testimonies in my life of God taking the suffering of this life and then 5, 10, 15 years down the road, converting it in something that seems truly beautiful and redemptive in ways that we could not imagine. That's wonderfully hopeful. Thank you for that. How do we respond to non-believers if they're using the despair of the world as their basis for not believing in God? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think you should affirm it, right? Uh, this is one where, one reason I really like Christianity, and then some of y'all are going to grow into this, this is why I like Calvinism sometimes. Um, because, no, okay, me and Aaron were talking about this, right? <laughs> Almost all the really good worship music of the 2000s came out of, like, Calvinist churches because Calvinism as a stream of Christian theology is really comfortable with saying life is hard, life is suffering. And if you do not have a, a theology and a, and a way of understanding uh, the way of Jesus does, that does not robustly include suffering in this life, people are just going to be like, oh man, this doesn't hit me when life gets hard. This is Pollyanna. This isn't realistic. And, and so I, I think what Christianity has, in particular streams of Christianity, is a robust acceptance of suffering in this life. And that we have, we have a, not an answer, right? We don't put it in a neat package, but we have a story and we have a God who enters into that suffering with us and invites us into this kind of wild experience that is life full of pain. And that's a realistic view that I think a lot of people, mm -hmm. skeptics, would appreciate that honesty. All right, last one. If Jesus is able to have solidarity with us in our despair, is the despair itself a lie or just the idea that it will last? Mm. That's a great question. Right? Okay, I'm going to say for the purposes of our discussion today, the feeling of despair in its definition includes a feeling of foreverness. Mm -hmm. So Jesus enters into us in our sorrow, in our sadness. I think you should, this is not a call for being stoic, right? This is saying like, we can feel sadness, we can, we can feel unhappy, we can have those things. Despair is that point when our sadness gets to the place where like this will go forever and there's no hope. And so I think Jesus enters into our sorrow if we invite Jesus to be there so that it does not become despair. Okay. 
Wonderful, great answers for these really fantastic questions today, y'all. Um, if you have any other questions or questions about the questions, feel free to continue texting them in and Colin will answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live.